0: week away, and then you'll be able to take a deep breath and move on with life. But before we do, I hope that this has been helpful as each week we've taken a look at the fact that God has brought light into our darkness, and that's why we celebrate. And we, don't, we shouldn't just celebrate one day a year. It should be something that is infused into every day we live, knowing that while we were in darkness because of our sin, Christ came and brought the light of salvation. I want to bring us one more reminder of that before we do that. Uh, We'll end off Advent, actually, on uh, Wednesday evening, since that's going to be our main celebration. We're going to end off Advent next uh, Wednesday, Uh, but today what I want to share with you is that promise that many of you have probably heard, at least in pieces. You may not be able to know where it came from, but you know of it, and I want to share that with you this morning. Again, looking at that picture of God bringing light in the midst of darkness, in Isaiah chapter 9... God shares his promise to the people. Now, remember, the people of God are are going to be carried off into exile and, and they're going to find themselves in what they would call spiritual darkness. They feel like they're separated from God, like God is nowhere near them while they're off in exile. But God's promise to them while they were off in exile is that he was not going to leave them there, but that in fact he was going to bring them back to himself. And Isaiah chapter 9 is a picture of what that looks like. It's the promise of God to people who are off in darkness of exile. Here's what he says starting in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah prophesies and says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is probably what you've heard before. For to us, a child is born. To us... So in the midst of people lost in exile and feeling like they've been forsaken by God and wondering whether God can ever bring them back and rescue them, God says a child is born, a son is given, and he is not just any child. He's not just any son. He is the son. He is the child who is destined to be the very ruler of all things because when he comes, He's not just coming to rule and reign in some temporary fashion. He's coming to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to rule forever. Well, guess what all the people were longing for? Guess what all the people of God were longing for? Oh, that someone would come like David and would sit on his throne forevermore. Remember, God promised that to his people, and now all of a sudden God says, and he speaks of it as if it's already happened. He says, there is coming a son and he will sit on the throne. And I want to tell you, this, this king, this king we're talking about, this king that's given by God, can I help you out? He's a good king. He is a good son. Because this king is described as being the wonderful counselor. He's described as being the mighty God. He's described as being the everlasting father. He's described as being the prince of peace. And oh, how we needed all of these things. You want to know if God's faithful to his promises? You may be sitting here this morning wondering, is God really faithful to his promises? Because maybe for you it doesn't feel like it. Maybe for you it doesn't feel like God has been near you for a long, long time. Maybe it feels like you wonder whether God is unable to do what he promised to do. Can I help you this morning? He said his promises are sure, and he said, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you a son, and he is going to sit on the throne of David forever. Guess what we celebrate at Christmas time that God gave a son, the one they'd been waiting for, the one they'd been longing for, the one Isaiah was writing about 750 years before he showed up. This is the son. And so what we celebrate on Christmas is not just that God gave us a son, but he gave us the only begotten son. And he is the king. So as we celebrate Christmas, may we remember That from the very beginning, God has brought light into the midst of even physical darkness. That God has brought light to his people. And the fact that even while they were in exile, even while they felt like God was far from them, they were able to know that God had made promises that he was going to bring them out. And this morning, what we continue to celebrate is the fact that this God, who promised to bring a son, promised to give a son, gave him. And we celebrate the fact that those who were once in darkness have been shown the light of salvation in Christ. Let's pray together. God, I pray that as we celebrate over the next week, the remainder of the season, God, I pray that you will help us to see that we are truly blessed people to know that in the midst of our spiritual darkness, you gave the light of your son, that we might have salvation, not just now, but forevermore. Oh, God, I pray that as we get caught up in this busy season, I pray, God, we will make room for Christ, knowing that he is the reason why we celebrate because he is the only king. He is the rightful ruler. He is mighty God. He is Prince of Peace. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ, to know that he is our only hope, and he is a sure hope in the midst of our affliction. Oh, God, may you help us to see the light brought in darkness. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, choir, for leading us. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 27, back to where we were last Sunday, and I thank you for bearing with me as we got to the end of the service last Sunday, and I just felt like there was too much more for us to discuss to cut it off so soon. So this is Psalm 27, revisited. This is Psalm 27, continued from last week. And in case you weren't here last weekend, it's okay. I'm going to fill you in on where we've been to bring you up to speed. But what we're going to look at is Psalm 27. And we're going to be focusing on verses um, 4 and following. That's where we're really going to camp this morning. But we'll do a brief little introduction before we get to that point. But Psalm 27, we're going to read this this morning. This is described as, to us as a psalm of David, we don't know the particular circumstances around David's life that this was written during. And so I think that's on purpose. I think it causes us to realize this could be written during any type of affliction or any type of struggle or any type of darkness. But in Psalm chapter 27, Psalm 27, what we see is a picture of the Lord's gracious presence even in the midst of darkness. And then how do we live in that darkness? knowing how God has shown himself to us. So, Psalm 27, if you are physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning in honor of God's word as we read it, and then I'll let you sit down for a little while. We're going to read the whole thing again, but then we're going to fast forward to verse 4 once we start studying. Psalm 27, Psalm of David, says this in verse 1, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?' "'The Lord is the stronghold of my life. "'Of whom shall I be afraid?' When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple." For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, or you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. God, I ask you to help us this morning as we study your word to understand it. Help us to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to see that Jesus is the hero of this text. God, I pray that you will help all of us in the different areas in which we struggle, the areas of darkness that seem to surround us, the difficulties we run run into on a regular basis. God, I pray that you'll help us in the midst of this season to give you the glory that you deserve. Lord, I ask you to help us to see the loveliness of Jesus in this text. God, I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Let's remind ourselves of where we've been. Last Sunday, what we looked at, again, we're not told the specific occasion that David is writing this, we just know that it's from him. We learned last week of the Lord's gracious presence. We saw that in the first couple of verses when David says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And in that we see that what David is saying is not just that the Lord is light and salvation, but that he's his light and his salvation. That this God is a personal God who actually looks upon his people and cares and acts on their behalf. And because of that, David says, whom shall I fear? What, what fear is there of man when we recognize the fact that God is the God of all things, including he is the God of light and he is the God of salvation? But we see that David is writing that there is a reality of darkness, He sees his evildoers and adversaries and enemies all around him. He sees them welling up for battle against him. He sees the army encamping, he says, or the war arising among him. So it's not not goodness in the absence of struggle. It is God's goodness in the midst of darkness that David appeals to. And then we get into verse 4 where we see that God has a purpose for us in the midst of the dark world we live in. He says there is one thing that he has asked the Lord and that will he seek after, that he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He has a singular focus. David's focus in the midst of his darkness, in the midst of all of his affliction, is that he focuses on the fact that he seeks after God. He wants the presence of the Lord more than anything else. And I gave you the illustration last week David talks about his desire to dwell in the house of the Lord. And I told you I didn't believe that was talking about just some random, um, he wants to dwell physically in the temple, although that may be wrapped up in this. It's not just that, it's the fact that there is joy in the presence of God and David's desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord. That is to perfectly dwell in God's constant presence. And I gave you the illustration of the the apartments that the priests would stay in in the temple area right they were the they were the, the choicest places to stay everybody wished they could have stayed in the priests apartments because the priests where they lived was right around the temple because they had to serve in the temple area and because of that every time people walked by there all everyone would want to live in those houses because they were the closest to god and I told you that, that it's, it's probably the case that as Jesus was teaching his disciples, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and, and when he also goes on to tell them that in his father's house are many rooms, it's probable that he was walking by these apartments of the priests while he was teaching them that, right? Where they so long to dwell, where, where everybody wished they could be close to God in his presence, God says that's going to be the case for all of his people, And here David's desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And then we start this morning to look at this. He says that he desires to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple you know what that means? You know what I think that means to gaze on the beauty of God. It's, it's to enjoy God, it's to see his beauty and to enjoy him for all of eternity, right? This, this desire of David to dwell and to gaze upon, to enjoy, to see, and to bask in the glory of God. doesn't mean that we don't see the brokenness still around us. It simply means that the brokenness of this life pales in comparison to the glory of God. God's glory is preeminent. And what I want to show you this morning are a few things. First thing I want to show you is that what, it, what it looks like to look upon God's beauty. That's what David desires. He desires to look upon God's beauty. Do you know what God's glory is? God's, the best definition I've heard of this is God's glory is the outward expression of his inner beauty, right? God is so beautiful, God is so glorious that he it displays it outwardly, right? That's his glory, that's what he shows and demonstrates. We see it in creation. God has demonstrated his glory. We see it in this world even today as he rules and reigns, as he rescues people, as he blesses, as he heals, as he saves, God is displaying his goodness. He's displaying his beauty, that's his glory, it's who he is, and what David longs for is to dwell in the house of the Lord, to dwell in his presence, not just for all the benefits he gets, but, but so that he could gaze upon, enjoy the beauty of God, to look upon God's beauty. I don't know about you, we have yet to see that finally and perfectly, right? We've, we, we, can, we see God, we see his glory, but, but we see it even imperfectly at this moment. But one day we're going to see God's glory in its perfection, to see him and his beauty. And I'm telling you, when we see God like that, all of the stuff we battle, all the darkness we see around us will pale in comparison to his glory. His beauty will reign supreme. And what David says is, I long to look upon and to gaze upon the beauty of God all the days of his life. Why do we want to dwell with God forever? So we could gaze upon his beauty. Worship him for who he is. And that's true even considering that we currently gaze upon the beauty of the Lord with what I call dim glasses. We don't see it perfectly. We see it dimly. And even that is far more glorious than the struggles we face. Even then it still causes the darkness to pale in comparison. And yet, even now, the darkness fades into the periphery when, we are, when, when our gaze is upon the revealed beauty of God. He is so glorious that everything around him seems to be as nothing compared to him. And then David says, not only does he wish to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, but he wants to inquire in his temple. He wants to inquire. I think that means to seek after, to desire to know him fully. He wants to inquire of the Lord. He wants to know him more because God is just that glorious. Now consider this. Notice the reason why David seeks after the presence and beauty of the Lord. Verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So not only look upon God's beauty, but I'm calling you this morning to look upon God's faithful protection. David says he is absolutely sure of the fact that God will hide him from his adversaries. Listen, the only hope we have in the midst of darkness and adversaries is to know that God will hide us with himself. Notice what he says. First, he says that we're hidden beyond reach. He says, he will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. I love this, right? Because when you got people bearing down on you, the, the greatest need you have is that someone might hide you away tuck you away somewhere, keep you safe. And that's exactly what David knows God's going to do for him, even in the midst of all of his adversaries. He will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. But not only is God going to hide him, but God is going to lift him up out of reach. So not only does he hide him beyond reach, he lifts him above reach. Because David says, he will lift me high upon a rock. The picture is being elevated above everyone so that when you have an elevated position, one person can take out more of enemies by themselves if they're elevated than if they're not. It's a a protective stance. So not only is God going to hide him away, but David says, God will also lift me high upon the rock. The picture there is of God's faithful protection. And David is looking upon that and he says, listen, in the midst of all my adversaries, I know there is one who hides me in his shelter, lifts me high upon a rock. He says, my head shall be lifted up. That is the result of what God does God is the one who lifts the head up. He's, he's above, he places him above his enemies all around him and he says, he says, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. What's the response of David to knowing that this God in the midst of his darkness and adversaries will hide him and guard him and protect him and keep him? It's the fact that he says, I'm gonna offer sacrifices to this God. I'm gonna praise him. I'm gonna sing and make melody to the Lord. Even if you can't sing good, even if you sound terrible, that you can still sing of God's great protection. You can still sing of his wonderful presence. He says, I will sing, melody, sing and make melody to the Lord. And this is when all human solace is gone. When everything is stripped from you and only God remains. This is the promise that God will hide him. Will lift him high upon the rock. Even in the midst of trouble and darkness, there is room for worship praise and joy in the presence of God. One of my favorite authors, Sam Storms, says that from, from verse 6 to verse 7, there's a change in view. It appears in verses 1 through 6 as if, as if David has been lifted up into the heavens, and he's looking down on threatening enemies and the troubles of life, and he sees how they pale in comparison to God. Now, in verse 7, the transition seems to bring him down to earth. And now David is looking at the afflictions that face him. He looks at all the darkness around him. And look what David says in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. So David is sure of the victory of God, and yet he still prays for deliverance in the midst of that. That's how we live today. That's how we live in the midst of darkness, is we're sure of victory, but we still pray our guts out that God will deliver us. David lays out his petitions before God. This is him just burying his soul to the Lord in the midst of darkness, and he says, hear when I cry. What he desires of God is that he might hear him. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, can I help you? That's not just crying in his heart. That's David crying out audibly for God to deliver him. There's a different type of stress involved with that. He says, O God, hear when I cry. Hear me when I petition you. He He goes on and says, hide not your face from me. What would it mean for God to hide his face? Well, I think it's the picture of a judge refusing to hear the case of someone who has come before him and turning them away. Then David asks, he petitions God, turn not your servant away in anger. Cast me not off, he says. Forsake me not, he says in verse 9. So what does David petition God for? Hear me when I cry, hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger. Cast me not off and forsake me not. That's what he desires in the midst of his affliction is that God would not turn him away, would not go blind or deaf to his need that he would not be forsaken. Can I help you though? Because of our sin, this is exactly what we deserve. Because of our sin, we deserve to not have God hear us anymore. We deserve to have God hide his face from us. We deserve God to turn us away in anger. We deserve God to cast us off, and we deserve to be forsaken. We deserve all those things because of our sin, because it is very real. That's the position we find ourselves in, apart from God working or doing something on our behalf. And yet, because we're found in Christ, we are declared righteous by his blood instead of guilty, instead of being forsaken, instead of not being heard, instead of being turned away. Instead Instead, we are found embraced by God. We find that he welcomes us to himself. I'm telling you, which of us thinks that we deserve to have God do this for us? But rather, it is the grace of God that even though he has every right to turn away from us and to turn his back on us and never hear our petitions and never answer our prayers, even though God has every right to do that instead of giving judgment, instead he brings us grace and salvation. And so those who deserve to be cast off are instead brought home. The ones who are deserved to be left wandering in the wilderness, Jesus says, I will go find them, and I will sling them upon my shoulders, and I will carry them home. And that's our cry. That's our cry. It's not only that God would do that for us, but that he would do it for all of our friends and families and neighbors and coworkers, that God would look upon them even though they don't deserve his grace and that God would give it. That's what we pray for. We pray God to pour out more and more grace so that people who are lost right now in this moment would come to know him. So even though we deserve to be cast off, even though we deserve for God not to hear our cry, because of what Christ did for us in his death on the cross, we know that we experience the forgiveness of God. Can I suppose to you and present to you the fact that when Jesus was on the cross, I I imagine that he was feeling this. What Christ was feeling on the cross was this. That when Christ was on the cross, he's calling out to God. It's as if God won't hear him. as if the Father won't hear him. Do I need to remind you that Jesus, when he's on the cross, is crying out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this. When Jesus is on the cross, it's as if God won't hear his cry. It's as if God has hidden his face. It's as if Jesus has been turned away by the anger of God. It's as if Jesus has been cast off. It's as if Jesus has been forsaken, so much so that Jesus actually says, God, why are you forsaking me? Why? Why do you turn your back on me? He did it because that's what we deserved. In that frightful moment when God turns his back on his own son and pours out his wrath, that's exactly what we deserved. And if it wasn't for Jesus, that's exactly what we'd get. But Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. This cry of David, this remember this cry of David is coming 750 years before Jesus steps foot on the earth. And what David is crying for is, God, hear me. Hear me! Don't hide from me! Don't turn me away! Don't cast me off! And don't forsake me! And I love the fact that the whole time God is saying, "I'm not going to," because I'm sending my son. You won't see him. You're going to die before he comes, but you're going to see him. That's what Christ did for us. And I sit here this morning, like I just ask myself: I mean. Is Christmas really then just about a bunch of get-togethers and buying some gifts for each other and then moving on with life? Or is it about the arrival of the one who was finally, finally going to be faithful to God and was finally going to provide eternal salvation for people? And that that baby in a feeding trough was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace that Isaiah and David had longed for. And because Jesus was cast off, because Jesus was forsaken, we aren't. And so as you look upon God's beauty in the midst of this world, And as you look upon God's faithful protection, I ask you to also look upon God's humble servant. Don't forget, on Christmas morning, when you're spending time with your family, don't forget the humble servant. Don't forget the Christ on the cross. Jesus never asked us to remember his birth, Jesus told us to remember his death. Christmas morning means nothing if he doesn't climb up on that cross and die. So the whole time, God's plan was he was going to provide salvation. And I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that God did that. And I'm thankful that God even allows us to know him. I'm sorry, that got really loud. I'm surprised God allows us to even know him. What right do we have to even know about God? God says he gave us all we needed to know and we turned it in for a lie instead. And yet God still shows himself. I don't know about you, but I'm not deserving of that. I exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and yet he still shows himself. Think about that beauty of the fact that God wouldn't just leave us down here, wandering around and falling off cliffs. He would actually show himself to us. He'd write himself into the story. Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritan authors, said this. He, meaning God, is willing to open and discover himself. God delights not to hide himself. I don't know about you, but sometimes we describe God as if he's like put a puzzle and a maze together and we're supposed to figure it out. Like God's hiding off in a back room and if you can just figure out which way it is to the room, you can get there and you can open it up. And like, ah, there's God. But that's not what God has done. That's what human religion does. It hides God in the closet makes you go try to find him. But what God has done, what what Christianity teaches us is that God has shown himself. He didn't wait to wander through the cavern. He didn't make a labyrinth. He showed up. He said, here I am. Here's my son. I love the fact that God God does not delight in hiding himself. He delights in showing himself and, and leading people to himself. And in fact, the fact that God is so gracious to allow us to come before Him with our petitions blows my mind. And it should blow yours too, especially if you know exactly uh, how much you've sinned in the past week. That God would hear your petition still. What grace that God allows us to come before him with our petitions but this is how we are to live amid darkness we are to be in constant reliance on God pursuing after him resting in the promise of Hebrews 13:5, where he says he will never leave us nor forsake us that's because Christ has rescued us and then finally I want you to look at verse 13 of Psalm 27 David says I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living now that's faith That's faith to know in the midst of darkness, in the midst of affliction, David knows I'm going to look upon my God. Listen, this morning, if you're a Christian, I want you to have the certainty and the assurance of knowing that you're going to look upon your God, right? He said, the life of a Christian living in a world marked by darkness is be marked by faith. We don't see it perfectly yet, but we trust God that he's going to show us himself fully when he comes back and takes us to be with him. David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. He doesn't say that in spite of affliction. He says that in it, I know I'm going to see him. I know I'm going to see him. And so as we look upon God's beauty and we look upon God's faithful protection and we look upon God's humble servant, I also want to call you to look upon God's promised return. Christmas means nothing if Jesus isn't coming back. If he's dead and gone then what are we doing? If Jesus isn't coming back, then why don't we just go home? There's far, if that's a lie, then there's far better things to do right now than to assemble together and buy into it. But this isn't a lie. This is the promise of God. And when God makes promises, he fulfills them. And if you need any proof of that, just check out all the promises he made in Scripture that he fulfilled. And in particular, just notice the promises of him sending his son. And know he fulfilled that. And so what David does is he looks upon the promises of God, and especially God's promise return. He says in verse 14, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord, right? Wait wait for God. Now remember, we don't know the exact situation around David's life that he's writing this about, but it's still true today. Guess what we're found doing? Guess what David was doing? He was waiting for God on the promise that God was going to do something. Guess what we do today? We wait on God. We're in the exact same spot, except we've seen Christ come and he hadn't. But what are, we, what are we found doing in the midst of darkness? Being scared. Oh, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if it's going to... It's all done. Oh. No, we're found waiting boldly in the promise of God that we will be with him. We will be in his presence forever, and he is going to return. David says, wait for the Lord. My encouragement to you in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your problems, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your hurt, wait for God. He's faithful to his promises. He will deliver you ultimately from all of this pain. Wait on him. Wait on the Lord. And then he says, "Be strong." So while you're waiting, be strong. Know that that God is more powerful than anything you and I will ever face in this life. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. I don't know about you. I need to be told that all the time. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Why can we do those things? Only because God is faithful to his promises. He will deliver us ultimately as his children. And David's cry that he might dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he's waiting for that to take place. He knows it's going to happen, and he's waiting. And he has courage because of that. And he is strong because he knows the God who rescued him is the God who is going to ultimately bring him into his presence forever. That's what we do in the midst of darkness. We wait on God. That's the spiritual paradox of being in relationship with God, seeking and waiting at the same time. But it's all based on trust of the Lord. And I'll leave you with this. Aren't you excited? I'm finishing right now. <laughs> Merry Christmas. I finish with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. When talking about this, this verse of waiting on the Lord, he says this, and I love it. Charles Spurgeon said, wait at God's door with prayer. Wait at God's feet with humility wait at God's table with service and wait at God's window with expectancy Oh, I love that. It means we have purpose while we're waiting. Spurgeon said you wait at God's door by praying. You pray constantly. Pray, lay your petitions before God. That's how you wait on God as you keep on praying. Then he says, wait at his feet with humility. It means that we constantly lower ourselves. We live a life in the midst of darkness, lowering ourselves and saying, God, you are our treasure. You are the glorious one. You are the one who deserves all worship. And then Spurgeon says, wait at God's table with service. It means that we're not just sitting around passing Waiting for God to come back. We're active in service to the Lord. We're sharing the gospel. We're preaching the gospel. We're leading others to the hope that is found in Christ. And then finally, it says, Wait at God's window with expectancy. There's nothing like when you're waiting for someone to arrive that you really want to see. And with expectancy, you look out that window and you keep looking out. You go back and do something. That, that's, that's how we live. That's how we wait on God, is we wait with expectancy. We're not just living our lives over here, doing our thing with our backs turned, just not even, not even worried about whether God's going to come back or even concerned with the fact that, that there is eternity at stake, but it's living life constantly. Everything we do, when we go to work, we're just, ex- while we're spending time with family, that expectancy of God's coming back, and I want to see him when he shows up. We wait. We wait on the Lord, expecting that he's going to come. Can Can I suppose to you that in Psalm 27, is praying his guts out in the midst of affliction he sees all of his adversaries right he looks out he sees everyone pursuing him I imagine even the threat of Saul and his men coming at him and David looks out and he sees all of his adversaries and all the things that are, he's struggling with and, and the, the violence and, and the hatred and the whole time he's God okay. it's keep turning his attention back to the fact he's waiting for the Lord can I encourage you this Christmas let's wait expectantly Let's wait at God's door with prayer. Let's wait at his feet with humility. Let's wait at his table with service. And let's wait at his window with expectancy, knowing that God is beautiful. God is faithful in his protection of his people. God gave his humble servant, and God is faithful to his promises. And let us wait this Christmas expecting God to deliver. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask you that in the midst of this season, we would look